It clearly was my worst spanking. If you've been listening to the Word Pictures early episodes, you know that I'm a mama's boy. I absolutely adore my beloved, God-loving mother. But she was not beyond using a wood spoon when necessary on little Tim. My worst spanking came at about the age of 11. That might have been my last spanking. It came because, in an angry confrontation with a brother, I suggested that both of us could end up seeing each other in hell. My mother heard about this and made it clear hell was not something she wanted her boys to not take seriously. In this Bible question, I'm going to try and do my best to give you what the scripture teaches about hell. There are lots of podcasts and sermons out there on hell. Most of them are like concordance discussions. You get the sense that the podcast host or the preacher looked up the word hell in a concordance, then read the verses and talked about them. You hear them break the word hell down into the various Greek or Hebrew words, Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, all that then explain the differences from lexicons and other books. It reminds me a bit of flying in the cockpit of a commercial airliner. These men and women on podcasts and in pulpits are reading the instruments. They've been well-trained and they're really good at it. That's not my plan here. I want to try to take on the role of a seasoned captain who's flown this route hundreds of times, who knows the topography of the landscape. It's very important to be good at reading those instruments if we want to get from point A to point B. But it also helps to understand the topography of the route. Occasionally, a captain may look out the window and say, I don't care what those instruments say, that object down there shouldn't be there right now. If you know anything about the small plane crash of John F. Kennedy Jr. or the helicopter crash of Kobe Bryant, You know how important it is to understand the basic topography of where you're going. I think that's especially important in a discussion about the eternal destinies of the lost. Having flown back and forth over the scriptures for 55 years, and over the last dozen years, leading students cover to cover through scripture, I want to give you my top 10 landmarks from scripture that I hope will help you or anyone you share it with, understand a bit more about the eternal destinies of those who reject what Christ did on the cross for us. I'm hoping if you've followed the Word Pictures podcast, you understand what I mean by that term. So here we go. Number 10. Please, in the study of the eternal destiny of the lost, use humility. In episode 8, I suggested scripture teaches we're like pygmies who found an iPhone That iPhone is God and his ways described in scripture. We're told by God, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then he explains how much higher. Jesus used the tool of parables in his ministry to help us pygmies in some way understand deep things of God better. We looked at what parables are in episode 98. He took symbols and stories that we know to teach us God's truth we could not otherwise know at all. And Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, carried along by the Spirit of God, says, We pygmies need God's Spirit to turn the lights on to many of the truths in Scripture, or we stay completely in the dark about them. All this to say is, what I'm about to say 
or what preachers or podcast people say about the eternal destiny of those who are lost, remember, I and they are pygmies trying to understand the deep things of God. Number nine, God gave people made in his image a choice. We looked at this in episode 18, and not just people, angels too. God's created beings, angels, and people are not stormtroopers. Unlike animals, we're not driven by godly instincts. We talked about man being made in God's image, and part of that image clearly is free will. That tree God placed in the garden, though we see that as one of God's tactical errors, that was done with intent. That tree allowed Adam and Eve to make a decision. Is God good? Does he have our best in mind? Giving Adam and Eve that choice to believe, to trust, placed very high value on them. And being chosen by his creatures to be loved and followed puts a very high value on God. In giving us a choice, God allowed us to choose to walk away from him. And if we choose to walk away from God, what can God do with us? And that's number eight. We were made to be eternal. We are made in the image of God, and death has no part in God's creation. Even after sin, we learned people in early Genesis lived for a very long time, up to nearly a thousand years prior to the flood. After the flood, we're told God capped the lifespan of man at 120 years and later in the Old Testament at 80. Those bodies of ours, now sinful, are a cocoon. We're like Kool-Aid packages. Dust add water. But inside that cocoon, God breathed into us a spirit that is eternal. We learn in the Old Testament theme that eternal person God made you to be was meant to be with him forever. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and we will be together. But if we choose not to follow God or be with God, if we are, in our word, lost spiritually, what does God do with us? I'm reminded of toxic waste from the nuclear process. It has to be stored. As I recall, nuclear waste has a half-life of about 10,000 years. But we're eternal. Our half-life is forever. Where is God going to store us? Which leads to number seven. And if you're dozing, please wake up. Cover to cover, we're taught it's God's will that none should be eternally lost. Let me repeat that. It is the will of God that not one human soul should be lost. On our journey through Genesis, God promised Abraham and his descendants the promised land. But he told Abraham, you're going to have to wait over 400 years to get that land. Why? So that God could try and reach the wicked Canaanite nations that occupied the land. As we proceed deeper into the Old Testament, God himself pleads with the wicked nation of Israel and Judah through the prophets, pleading with them to return to him. If you want to see just how desperate God gets to get the message through, Listen to the episodes on Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It's almost hard to read how much God bends over backwards to try and reach these lost souls. Most listening to this, even if you only attend church on Easter Sunday, should understand what God did to his son on the cross to bear the sins of all people. 
If you're not familiar with that story of what happened to Jesus, it would be worth your time to listen to episodes 114, 115, and 116 on the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, in his teaching, added that the Holy Spirit would work overtime to seek to convince lost people separated from God of their sin, God's holy standards, and the eternal consequences of not being reconciled to their Creator, God. Moving to the last chapter of the New Testament, Jesus is pleading, I'm coming, come back to me, come to me, please don't perish. And I need to end this point, it's God's will that none should be eternally lost, with the most well-known passage in the New Testament, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, the lost world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Peter adds to this, Part of the reason it's taken so long for King Jesus to return, judge sinners, and set up his kingdom is that it is his desire that none should perish, that more, perhaps including someone listening to this Bible questions, could come back to him and be saved. Number six, scripture teaches sin must be judged if God is to be good and just. God says in scripture, vengeance is mine, let me repay, says the Lord. And God won't just judge the big things. Jesus said we will be accountable for every careless word on the day of judgment. God needs to follow through on that promise. Imagine a parent, a police officer, or a judge who just looks the other way. We call that corrupt. Those words and actions that we've done that have wounded others And God, don't we have to be accountable for that? Scripture says, yes, we do. Either we have to pay the penalty ourselves, or have someone else step in as a substitute and pay it for us. And that's the message of Scripture. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Number five, nobody in judgment will be able to accuse God of injustice. In other words, we will get precisely what we've chosen and what our sin deserves. If Jesus hasn't already taken what our sin deserves on himself, and yes, that includes babies and infants, or those people in remote tribes who've never heard. I keep coming back to Philippians chapter 2. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The New Testament teaches it is Jesus' role to judge sin and sinners. Those who are living and those who have died will bow their knee before the judge Jesus and say, your verdict is just. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis makes this quote, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. He continues, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. Which leads to number four. Hell's gates are locked on the inside. Let me explain. I've often stumbled over what I call the Les principle. If you've seen Les Jean Valjean early on is imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread. 
early in the story as it unfolds, you realize there's something deeply and morally wrong with that. A hungry man going to prison for a long time for stealing a loaf of bread. That's the biggest obstacle to many about seeing the eternal destiny of the lost or hell. Does the punishment fit the crime? This causes many to suggest hell cannot be eternal, that at some point the person's soul ceases to exist. If you want the fancy term, annihilation. Often folks point to Jesus' own words about both body and soul being destroyed in hell or being burned up with fire. But let me plant a seed for you to think about. What if the lost continue to sin in hell? I'm not talking about a sinful party. I'm coming to that next. I'm talking about a rebellious heart. Scripture uses the word rebellion nearly 20 times. For example, in 1 Samuel 15, God tells Saul that a rebellious heart is as bad as one that is idolatrous. You get the sense from Scripture, a rebellious heart will continue for the lost in eternity. I got kind of a taste of this growing up. With three older brothers, I often was picked on, and for good reason. I could be a real snot. Occasionally, one of them would take me down on the ground and put my arm behind my back. If you're a guy listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. That brother would apply pressure and say to me, Say uncle, meaning, I submit, I give up, you win. Even today, they tell stories about how their little stubborn brother would never say uncle. They'd stop knowing I'd lay there getting my arm ripped off before I would comply. One gets the sense reading scripture that in hell, those present would refuse to say uncle and repent, even if that were possible to change their fate. That, dear friends, is sobering. Number three, hell is not one size fits all. Scripture teaches varying degrees of experiences in hell. Jesus, speaking of his return and our accountability in Luke 12, said one who has knowledge and rejects it experiences more consequences than one who commits the same sin without knowledge. This is just one passage where Jesus gives his to whom much is given, much is required central value. Number two, the destiny of the lost, the experience of hell, is taught in fearful metaphors, especially by Jesus. The popular thoughts of hell today are inconsistent with the Bible's teaching and the New Testament in particular. We're given the idea it's a hotel run by Satan, a place to party with your irreligious friends, you know, stripped of those fuddy-duddy do-gooders. But that's not the teaching of Scripture, and especially of Jesus. Cover to cover, hell is taught as the absence of all that's good and God. We got a taste of the stripping of good and God several times in Scripture. The first was in Genesis chapters 4 and 5 prior to the flood, where every thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. This brought on the judgment of the universal flood. Then we get to the period of the judges, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you remember that yuck? We fast forward to the book of First and Second Kings. The kings of Israel and Judah, like Manasseh, the killer king of Jerusalem. But even here, there were still righteous people and godly influence. 
imagine an experience stripped of that. Jesus spoke of hell at least a dozen times. Jesus taught it as a real, conscious, eternal experience for those who chose it. Jesus described it in the metaphors of darkness, fire, and teeth-gnashing torment. It's hard to read, which is probably why our Savior, moved with compassion, repeated it a dozen times. And number one, the teaching of eternity with God is not clearly understood. Scripture tries to inspire in us a repulsion of the experience of hell for the lost, but it also tugs deep at us with the alluring experience of eternity in heaven. We don't have a clear picture of those things, either by our popular culture or often our teaching from Scripture. An eternal church service? I've been in many church services so boring the paint was peeling off the walls. Or a ceasing of all meaningful labor? I love to work and accomplish things. Or how about being turned into one of those generic cherub angels with wing things? Dear God, please, spare me. Couldn't you just annihilate my soul? I can't do that for more than a few thousand years. Do we understand what the Bible teaches about what it'll be like where he's our God, we're his people, and we dwell in his midst? Oh my, the tug of eternity is taught by the Bible. A new heaven and a new earth. Let's take a look at the topography of that experience in our next Bible questions.